You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the final episode of Nigel Neal's Beasts, the episode entitled Dummy. Filming on the latest comeback installment of the Dummy movie series, Revenge of the Dummy, is not going well. Clyde Boyd, the man in the monstrous dummy suit, is just not giving the performance needed. He is upset at the presence of fellow actor Peter Wagner, the man who stole his wife and daughter. So distracted, Clyde ruins another take and storms off the set, unable to continue. This represents problems for the director, Sidney. In addition to the usual time-cost issues, he's got a real deadline of getting the scenes with Sir Ramsay finished before the day is over. Sir Ramsay has a small part in the film, but he's a real casting coup. His contract expires after today and is leaving the country. Failure to complete his scenes today will have disastrous consequences for the film. On the set to watch the events today is Joan Eastgate, writer who really wants to chat with Clyde Boyd above all else. She's got an angle she wants to explore concerning how people adapt to the characters of the masks they adopt. The publicity man escorting her has orders to keep her away from him. Bunny Nettleton, producer of the film and somewhat estranged friend of Clyde, arrives. Upon seeing Clyde's state, he suggests to Sidney that they replace Clyde with someone else. Sidney tells him that no one else can fit the custom-built costume and the actual performance of Clyde is visible in the dummy. It would be obvious if it wasn't Clyde. If you want to fire somebody, fire Peter Wagner. He's competent, but basically a no-name actor who was hired as a fallback when the original lead had to drop out. Bunny tries that, but Peter is wise to what's up and makes sure Bunny knows that he'll sue if he's dismissed. He wants the part. Bunny even offers him full pay and a bonus to drop out. No deal. Get rid of that loser Clyde, he suggests. Bunny chats for a while with Joan, and she expounds upon her idea. She wants to know if Clyde, like some primitive tribesman, experiences a duality of personality when they put on the mask. In some cultures, people who wear ceremonial masks feel that they become, that they, that they channel the actions of the living mask. But he assures her that, no, it's just a job to him. But that does give him a bit of an idea. He tries talking with Clyde again. He learns more about how deep in despair Clyde is. He was on the point of suicide when this part came along. It literally saved his life, but he is despondent that despite the success of the film series, he is still unknown. An actor who lacks presence, a theme that has haunted his career and wrecked his marriage. Bunny, however, tries a different approach. People love the dummy. The dummy has millions of fans. You are the dummy. It is the synthesis of you and the costume that becomes what they love and adore. This motivates Clyde to try again. As he leaves, Bunny lays it on even thicker. 
insisting he cannot be in the room to watch him put on the costume. This is it. This is the part I can hardly watch. Oh my God, I never wanted to see this. I never wanted to be in this room when you become the dummy. They set up quickly and Clyde comes out and gives the performance of his life. Also the life of the actor intended to be his victim in this scene, whom he kills on camera. For real. Realizing what's happened, Sidney has the set evacuated. The end. Uh, sorry. The end of part one. The police arrive, <laughs> thinking that there's a wild animal on the loose. The dummy is trapped inside the set and on a rampage, tipping over the tea trolley and everything. The cops' first attempt to get inside are rebuffed by the dummy. When they learn that part of the problem is Clyde's estrangement from his wife, they demand that Peter go get her and bring her to talk with the dummy. Peter doesn't like the idea, but he isn't given a choice. Their next attempt involves putting a speaker through one door and having Clyde's wife talk to the dummy, telling him what he wants to hear, while the cops try to get the body of the dead actor out another door. That fails, too, when the dummy smashes the speaker. Clyde's wife rushes in to plead with it in person. The dummy moves to attack her, and she runs to escape, tripping over and covering herself in the movie blood prepared for the scene. Seeing her covered horribly in blood, Peter grabs the shotgun in his car and sneaks onto the set. The form of the dummy is in a chair, back to him, and he gives it both barrels. The empty costume slumps to the floor. The costumeless dummy leaps out from behind Peter and strangles him to death. As he is escorted away in police custody, the rather clueless Sir Rodney inquires to Joan, Who is that? The dummy, she replies. Okay, the Dummy, Dummy, what did you think of uh, this episode? I I really enjoyed this one on a, on a number of levels, but I guess probably not least for the fact that Nigel Neal was obviously giving his take on the rubber-suited monster um, genre of science fiction. Because, I mean, after all, this isn't... The only science fiction in this is the science fiction within the, the actual... Uh, fiction within the fiction here mm -hmm. and the at, at, at first well. it seemed like it was it was neil having an obvious poke at the rubber monster you know the kind of thing that typically inhabits the sets of doctor who and so forth but actually yes. he's doing a bit more than that he is he is demonstrating his own virtuosity in a sense by showing in the denouement, that he can not only can he make the monster in the rubber suit scary, but he can make the monster scary without the rubber suit. I guess so. I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the episode. There were bits of it that were a bit that were too much. I mean, there has never, never been a costume that bad on Doctor Who. There have been bad costumes, never that bad. Caves of Androzani. Admittedly, it was after, but still. Caves of Androzani had the robots and had... It wasn't a robot. It was some sort of reptile. Oh, the the bat thing? I don't remember. I, I will say that the Merca is, is pretty bad. Yeah, but I yeah, don't I know. I would say... I, I, I would still say this one was worse. I think it was intentional. I, I mean, I, I, I think it was intentional, but... 
I mean, bear in mind that you never see what the viewer sees. What we see is the behind the behind the scenes view of it, which is obviously never going to be as good as as what you get in shot or the kind of selection of of what you see in shot. Yes, a costume never looks as good as it does on TV, but this is on TV and it is not a, just a function of how it's shot. It's a function of TV hiding the sins. So therefore I think that they've made the sins of this costume intentionally worse. Is, does that make sense? Oh, I'm sure I think it's, not, been... it's not meant to be a good costume. Yes. Right. It, it's meant to be a truly awful costume. And I think yeah, it exactly. just maybe is a little too far. Yeah. Um, but as you say, he's having a poke at Doctor Who, which Neil famously would never write for. Um, but obviously he's having a poke at Hammer yeah. as well. And obviously he's having a poke at Godzilla as well. Yes. Yes. the Japanese. Because I, I'm not aware that that like the Hammer films or anything were particularly uber popular in Japan. Popular perhaps, but I mean, not. Not like, not like you keep the series alive just for Japan, kind of thing. So no, I'm it, sure it was. It, it was it was pretty broad, yeah. Um, and you know, I just I just finished watching uh, some episodes of Ultraman, uh, Leo, and uh, that is not just arguably, but that is well. Maybe it is, and that's arguably, but let's just say it's probably the worst of the bunch in terms of set design and costume design and, and filming it. And still the dummy comes out on top is bad. So, uh, <laughs> it's like they, they, they really did their, they really did their work to try to make that the worst ever made for, for television. But, um, yeah. Also, huge cast. Amazing cast. Surprising yeah. cast. I mean, I, I, I don't, did, did we know? Did we, did we discuss the fact that Simon Oates was in this? Um, because did we, I don't think we discussed it. I did know that he was in one of these episodes somewhere. I hadn't. I mean, I, I deliberately avoided finding out too much about any episode. I know we mentioned that the, the guest, the big name guest stars, Bernard Horsfall and, and Clive Swift, but I literally only just the night before having had a bit of sort of Simon Oates withdrawal after the end of our of our run through um, Doom Watch, I'd just been watching the second of his Avengers appearances in Super Secret Cipher Snatch. So, I when I when I caught a, a glimpse of him wandering onto the set just out of the side of my eye in this, I was like, "Hang on a minute, that that guy really really looks like Simon Oates." But I'm just imagining it because that's what I'm thinking about at the minute. I knew it because I had seen Oates's IMDb profile a while back you know looked through some of his filmography and had seen the avengers and when we were doing doom watch and it saw that the beast was one of the things in there so i, I knew he was in it somewhere but i didn't know where and and frankly who knows how big of a part it was so i mean sometimes no no it wasn't it wasn't a big part which is why he wasn't billed very high which is why i didn't know about it um, but then Cl clive clive swift was superb in this i thought i do not think i've seen him give as good a performance well, uh, he he was perfect for the part. Yeah, he was perfect for the part. Um, as was, um, and the name's eluding me here for a second. Uh, Glenn Houston as yeah. uh, the director. Yeah, 
I'm, I'm sure he's, he's got a very familiar face, but I can't quite place what I know. I think he's Ron Dutt in uh, Power of Crawl, if nothing else. Okay. I've only seen that a couple of times, so I'm surprised. And it wasn't he all... Uh, he's definitely been in Doctor Who more than once, I would be willing to bet. Most people have. Colonel Ben Worsley in The Awakening... And he okay. was the professor in the hand of fear, uh, but oh, he apparently well, I have was to not. That. But he was apparently not Rom Dutt. But anyway, yeah, he's 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 been he's been all sorts of stuff. Oh well, I ju- I just watched season fourteen, so that's where I've, that's where I remember him from. All pretty good, and and considering how size of the cast in the other episodes, very surprising how many people were in this and yes. had speaking yes. parts. And uh, they were saving the budget for for this. But I mean, when you say speaking parts, there's a there's a shot near the beginning where we're just following um, Sid as he strolls off to talk to one of the crew or whatever, and the the shot takes us past a couple of extras, extras in both both the fictional production and in the, in this episode. Except one of them has a line. I can't remember exactly what she says, but watching seventies yeah. TV, and you think, my God. You know, if they let her say something, then they have to pay her. Yeah. Well, the the sound man, the 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 FX guy. Yeah. Uh, yep. Oddly enough, I think the grave robber actor never got a line. So. Uh, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> maybe a little screaming. Does that count? Does that count as a line? It probably does. I don't know. I mean, it was a. It was a. a it's probably a union part, rule so about I, how many I hope vowels. His agent got him a, a decent wage for that one. Yeah, you think he'd be a stuntman, possibly, but yeah, it was. I, I I enjoyed the episode. I'm gonna say I was not enamored with Bernard Horsfall's acting in this. Oh, okay. I I don't know. It it just it was a little OTT. I mean, I know he's uh, supposed to be going nuts. I think, but I don't it, think it would have worked if he weren't. I think he's got. I think he's got to be at that level for for it to for it to actually be plausible that he actually goes berserk on set. Otherwise, it's too big a leap. Maybe I should say it's the way he does his OTT. It. I mean, I don't know. It. It just didn't. It just didn't work very well for me. I got where they were going, and I got the understanding that he was going to go berserk fairly early in the story. But um, I don't know. I, I just he just didn't didn't sell it to me. Oh, I. I... But apart from that minor complaint, and I've seen Bernard Horsfall do some quite good acting. So it's this is no. Not I think a... he is good, but I but I I was conversely I was thinking you know most people could not do what he's doing. There, most people could not sell something that OTT, and it mm. it it's particularly good because you you don't see him at all. You get all you get all of the kind of build up to this character while he's still inside the suit, and you and you haven't seen him, and therefore you haven't seen the fact that he is already falling apart in there. And then mm-hmm. it's not until you know the head comes off and. By the time you see him for the for the first time, therefore he's already he's already falling to bits and reaching for the for the hard stuff. I mean, it's a clever way of 
of of ramping it up, I think. Well, of both building building it up for us, the audience, and of ramping it up towards that kind of climax to Act One. That um, you know means that you get there in double time, I guess. Are we supposed to take that this is day one of filming? No, I don't think so. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have had uh, Sir Ramsay for just one day, would they? I, it's a good question. I don't know, but I mean, if if he's having so much trouble with Peter Wagner on set, you know, was he was he doing okay yesterday? That that's kind of the they they mentioned they mentioned when I the tea lady I think said when he came in this morning I saw him and I asked him if he was sick or or something he didn't look good so it it felt like he, the guy kind of clearly, felt like he's been going on the guy is clearly unstable and and also wager has been wager's been on his mind he just hasn't been in the room you know could be his his wife has left him so. He's clearly having some trouble, and when when he starts making mistakes in the scene, it's not as if anyone is completely surprised by it. So I I I, I thought all of that worked quite well. The only the only thing if I were if I were to want to pick a nit with this, the only thing would be the idea that he is any sort of a star acting inside a rubber suit, because I'm thinking, well, get, name me any of the famous monster movies where the actor who spends all of their time inside the suit is so well known that they would be a draw being the one inside the suit in the sequel. You couldn't just simply replace them. And I, and I know... Boris Karloff. But he's not hes not in a suit, is he? Frankenstein? He he's was. Prosthetics. Well, th- th- I, this is clearly also kind of mirroring that, that... Bella Lugosi, Boris Karloff, any of these people that portrayed these these monsters have have had career destroying or at least career setbacks over this, and, and it's not as much. And I will tell but, you, but, but, but I can't, not, I can't name point. them. I can't name them, but I can absolutely assure you that there are quote in Japan there are famous actors who played Godzilla. I mean, the names people know them. I go oh well that's uh, and I like I say I cannot I cannot name them because I don't commit them to memory because they are sure no and I I it, so I, I mean I, yeah, there I guess, are people. I guess it makes the point of the production that that people do that but I found it difficult to believe when I was looking at the movement of the dummy in this suit that somehow the way that he moves and all the rest of it is so. Good. I'll, ag- that no I'll agree with could, you that could uh, match him. That that suit was not good enough that you could believe that. I will absolutely agree with you. But again, that comes down to how awful that suit was. But, uh, you know, kind of going back to like the Frankenstein, I mean, they did change Frankenstein out and people complained because, okay. uh, you know, they, they, they it was not the same actor doing doing the part. And he's just not I still as good. Frankenstein is more. Well, it is. It is more human than that. Like. Yes, but you Remember, know what about Frankenstein uh, is the monster, not the doctor. What, what about uh, um, uh, Christopher Lee in the Mummy films? You cannot yes, okay. see. Okay, I, I, I will, I will adjust my criticism to to align with yours of the suit. The <laughs> issue is what you see on screen in this episode doesn't sell the fact that the yeah way he moves is so particularly special and recognizable that audiences would care 
if it wasn't just someone else stumbling around inside it. I wonder if there's also a a little critique going on here. Uh, you know, I th- I think I think Neil is poking a bit of fun at that. Those you, know, you can't tell who the actor is, so what does anyone care if it's Christopher Lee inside the performance? But there's also you know, this is the seventh film, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's arguable. I was thinking it was the sixth, but but reading elsewhere, it might be the seventh. I'm not no, sure. Gave, so, there were seven titles listed. There's, okay, there were six previous, and then this is the seventh. Okay, got it. Um, uh, I have the titles here. And um, it could be true that the suit is molded to the body so that it would be difficult. They couldn't just grab another actor they would have to get somebody. They might have to do some customization. I mean, that is sure. that is true in some special effects where the the prosthetics or the devices or the costumes uh, are made to be for that actor. And it is an expense if you're going to recast them that you have to go get more work done on the costume and that, that costs money. And I wonder if, despite what Bunny said and how Bunny said it, if this wasn't yet another symptom of how far down the chain of sequels this was that they went and got the washed up falling apart actor to fit the suit rather than spend the money to fix the suit for somebody else or even make a new suit yeah or yeah or a good one you know exactly. <laughs> rebirth of the dummy um Son of dummy. i will i will i will also go and say the other part of this that just I know it's got to be a dig. Dummy is the dummiest dumb name for a monster ever. Yeah, I, but I think you're right. That is a dig. That is a dig. And maybe at the mummy. <laughs> but I oh, don't know. Yeah. Or the audience. I'm not sure which. But it, it definitely... It's like, dummy has dummy has meanings. I could have... I could have guessed you know, without looking at a synopsis, that there was absolutely going to be a ventriloquist who loses his mind to the dummy in this, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a classic old Twilight Zone tale. And I kind of knew this was about a washed up actor and and the part he plays. And somehow I still would have assumed that dummy meant a dummy, a ventriloquist's dummy or something of that nature, not a bear, bear pig <laughs> thing. But I think they, they, they were going that way. Well, no, it was a, it was a sleight of hand that uh, Eastgate has this spiel about how certain tribes will wear masks. And mm-hmm. it's not that they... It, 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 it's not that they believe that the mask makes them unrecognisable, it's that they believe that the mask itself has life, which is kind of, that's similar to the dummy story you're you're referring to, I think. Yes. <clears throat> yes, it, it, it is. Although, you know, at the end, is it really, is it really the dummy that has life or is it the, the, the ventriloquist who is going nuts? And, you know, the stories go different ways. Sometimes it really is alive and sometimes it is just so. Yeah, there is that. There's absolutely that. It It, it is a parallel to it. It's just, you know, it just it's just a it, it's a not only is it a terrible name, but you'd never sell movie tickets. No, but that. I think that I think <laughs> the, the point of the dig is that you very much would. 
Mm, maybe. Speaking of the films, what I was able to find is that the previous films... And and now, this is taken from people online. And, and the reason I question it, the reason I question this list was because I didn't go back and listen. I thought that the guy said this was the sixth film, but he might have said that there have been no. six previous films. He did. Either way. And he listed then the when they, titles of them. Yes, but now this is my point. When he listed the films, I had no confidence that he actually knew what the names of the films were. Right? Well, he listed I mean, six names. Name, he listed six names. Were, That's right. I, but I got the feeling that he was lost in that. I mean, can you name all the Frankenstein films after you go Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein? And I then it's like, the well, there's Bond probably films. a revenge. There's probably a curse. There's probably a blood of, there's probably, you, you can go. And that's where I kind of thought where this guy name all the was going. <laughs> well, uh, some, some, but I wouldn't think necessarily that just a, a, a studio hack would do that. But anyway, they were the dummy, the horror of the dummy, death of the dummy, return of the dummy, dummy and the devil, dread of the dummy. And of course, the one they're working on, revenge of the dummy, which you would have thought would have been much higher on that list because revenge is a very popular second or third title for a train of film. Sure, but but, as uh, said, but it fits. One. Yes. Revenge of the dummy fits because it is the dummy getting revenge. And Peter Wack in this yes, film. Yes, I guess. So, but, you know, definitely I would have I would have gone there by the third film, you know, long before The Dummy and the Devil or Dread well, of the Dummy. No, Dummy and the Devil is a much better title. I think, I think the point is that they were, they were coming up with better titles earlier in the series and they, and they resort to the obvious ones because they're now running out of ideas. I, well, I think they're all pretty, pretty low on the on the originality scale, but they the are better. I will give bad. you this. I will give you this. Yeah, Return of the Dummy should be the second one, to be fair. But I will give you this. There is nothing I hate worse in modern movie naming than numbers. I I hate the fact that they have decided that we need to number films and then give them a subtitle after the fact, because they are afraid that the audience will not know that this is a Star Trek film or whatever it happens to be, where they just go in and number them. So obviously all of these would have been the dummy two or the dummy. But it's not that <laughs> the dummy to three to, no to number Superman 2 came out a few years after this aired, didn't it? It did. Well, that's one of the first, too. Well, maybe, but it's gone out of fashion again. I mean, after after Mission Impossible 3, you've got to do your work to work out what order those films go in. Well, if you were just a fan. But I th can you imagine how awful it would have been if it was like James Bond 2 from Russia with Love? Well, it would have been Doctor No 2 from Russia with Love, in fairness. Okay, you're right. It probably would have been. That's even worse. Well, but you could look at, although they didn't go numbers, you could look at uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is a wonderful film with a great title. And then they ruined all the rest of them with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Or, you know, they, well, they 
they're still not calling it Indiana Jones 2. They don't they did not. That's true. That's what I said. They they didn't go with the, the numbering there, but they had to rebrand the film series so that the stupid audience would not lose track of the films they wanted to go see. So film naming is a terrible thing. These are terrible names. These are right out of the hammer horror films. They're also right out of Terry yeah. Nation scripts as well. But yeah, for Daleks. But uh, yeah. Although the Daleks and the Devil. All right, so that would be good. That's the that's that, clearly the best title. That one could have been. That one could have been. You know that planet with the the impossible planet. If the Daleks yeah, had invaded the impossible planet, boo! There we go. Daleks and the Devil. <laughs> Question about the series as a whole, not just this episode, but the series as a whole. But it it. it there have been a couple episodes that I've noticed this more than others, but I know that it's the same in all of them. It's just some, it it's more obvious. And that is how wildly missized part one is versus part two. Yeah. In, in at least two of these, this one included, I feel like the story's pretty much over or they could have ended it at the end of part one. I and then it's been going on. I don't, I don't, I don't feel that. I, so I agree. I, the, there's a pattern almost all the way through this that that part one is about thirty minutes and part two is about mm-hmm. twenty minutes, which is remarkably unbalanced and must have something to do with the fact that it's very, very unusual to have a this would have, this would have been a drama filling a one hour slot on ATV. It's very unusual to have only one ad break. I think. Um, I think so. so Certainly would have been in the 80s. And I think, you know, I mean, I think I can trace that back because looking at older episodes of, you know, the early Avengers, they all still have their their bumpers. They all follow the same pattern of three acts. And so this is almost as if the first two parts have been merged together. That's the way I kind of feel about it, is it's like act one and two are in in part one. Yeah. But... In this episode, it really felt to me like, and you alluded to it in the in the synopsis, that at the end of Act One, we had reached the end of the this, this story because everything was building up to him going berserk, and now he had gone berserk. And yeah, were we going to get a sequel? And yet, surprisingly enough, I thought that the sequel was in fact really quite effective. I, I, yeah, I didn't have any problem with the second part of the film, but I, I, I do feel like you could have just walked away from it at the end of part one. And, Definitely. And with with one minor exception, he should have killed Peter instead of random actor on the set. But apart from that, I, I think that was the only thing that made me... When it went to the end and they were all running out, it's like, well, that's it then. The cops are going to come in and uh, arrest him and uh, or shoot him. And that's going to be the end of it. We don't need to tell the rest of that tale. I'm I'm adopting your stance on some of these things. I don't I don't need to see what happens after that. I I got enough. That's enough. Um, to how we solve this problem. <laughs> well, it would have it uh, would have been. I mean, I think it would still have been it would still have been good on its own. And in, interestingly enough, I don't know whether you you made a note of the fact that we had Chekhov's articulated steel mm-hmm. hands. In oh yeah, this yeah. One and so. Obviously, the principle of Chekhov's articulated steel hands says if you have uh, articulated steel hands at the in the first act, then you know you must see them 
being used by the end and we do see them being used by the end so that does seem to be the end and also and we, you know, we actually we get have Chekhov's, Chekhov's shotgun, shotgun in, the, <laughs> in the second part so when when you it says when when uh, a shotgun is placed in the boot at the beginning of the second act then it must shoot an empty costume by the end um and indeed it did so it was interesting to see it being used not not just once but twice yeah yeah, I, I had a note of that that it was it was weird, <laughs> and I you know I think probably again if we're going to attribute the brilliance of Nigel Neal here, intentional. Oh yeah, no, I think you know I think you can you can play with the trope of Chekhov's gun as well uh, in a, in a story, but then that's typically or typically used as a red herring, but uh, but not in this case. It was it was actually used. And still not, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that is part of the reason why it feels so much like part one ends when it needs to end. Because the Chekhov's articulated mechanical hands have been used. But I, th- but I, think, I think there is something about the structure of this episode. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. He's playing, he's playing with that rule, but I think he's also doing something the fact that you can you can say at the end of act one in this the story is complete in essentially every respect has to have been something that he's deliberately crafted whether just for his own amusement or whether he's trying something out or whatever and 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 he then effectively creates a second episode or you know in Mm -hmm. film terms a sequel which okay depends on us having seen the first half, but actually manages to develop. We, I mean, we get a new character coming in because we, we up to that point, we haven't actually seen Patricia Haynes, uh, uh, even though she's been mentioned. So there's there's that strand. There's the there's the police sergeant who is a new character, and we've got a whole new problem, which is how you know how are we now going to subdue this rampaging dummy, which he then resolves in in that half. And it made me think he's structured that so cleverly and so perfectly in this in this story. And we've had, as as you've noted, this same pattern of 30 minutes, 20 minutes throughout the, all the previous episodes. To what extent has he done something like it in all of them? I kind of feel like, and it, it is just it is just a feeling looking back at them, that Special offer kind of had that feel for me too. I feel like I need to rewatch them to see, see, has he done it and how has he done it? But but there definitely have been at least two or three that that you could have just walked away. And I think it's partially it's because um, it will allude back to the Twilight Zone. Sometimes those leave you with the realization of what the mystery has been. You now know what it is, and they don't need to go anywhere. It's left for you in your imagination to to see what the next set of consequences or actions will be. But once you realize what's really happened, you you can walk away from it. And that I think that is a Twilight Zone thing. I can think of at least one example where you don't need to know what happens next, but you know there's a story there. Uh, it won't be the same type of story necessarily, but um, 
Yeah. Yeah, so it's that. I, I kind of wonder if maybe is this fairly early in the in commercial television in Britain? It's about twenty years in. Oh well, that's not very early, okay? Because it, it feels like they're it feels like they're loading it up so that when you get to that break, you're not. I don't know. That that conflicts with my conflicts with my premise on this episode. But the the, the front loading makes you feel like. If you've got this far in, you're going to come back after the commercial break. <laughs> but on the other hand, you don't need to. So I don't know. I don't know. It's it is a it's an odd one. Um, let, let's talk about the character of Peter. You think they hired him just because of what a a jerk uh, Simon Oates could be on Doomwatch? Because uh, he he does a really good job of it here. Um, Possibly. I mean, I I. <laughs> So I've, I've been watching. I've been watching the appearances in the Avengers. So I've I've watched him in uh, You've Just Been Murdered, and I've watched him in Super Secret Cipher Snatch, both of which are pre Doomwatch. And I've yet to to rewatch him in in Hostage, which is which is post Doomwatch. Those two episodes are very much not John Ridge, whereas mm. this episode of Beasts is quite John Ridge in a number of aspects. The 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 kind of cockiness, the kind of the 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 womanizer, the although Ridge actually over the course of the series you get to scratch the surface and realise there is something something running a little deeper there. He has that veneer of being very Yeah. Shallow. Shallow, yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, I think I think in this you you get the sense that that Wager is, dis, despite everything he said, he is actually quite protective of Sheila Boyd, and some of what he puts on is actually just a, a front. Yeah, I I had some issues there with his portrayal of that because we've got well, maybe not the portrayal of it, but but you know there is a line casually to I think the reporter where he's talking about you know never get involved with women with children which obviously he is hmm. you you have the sequence which you know we we don't I think it's clever that you know at one point Peter is basically saying look I'm taking care of her when you couldn't you know there are two sides to this story and 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 I can't remember where it is but in something not not long ago, I either watched or we talked about uh, a line in a in a story where you can't steal another person, right? Peter Wagner didn't steal Boyd's wife; she left him. Yeah. You know that it, it takes two. She's not a she's not a a possession, and so you know there is there is at least three stories here: Boyd's, Boyd's wife, and and Wagner's. And you know we hear Boyd's up front. And it's pretty awful. This guy's done terrible things to me and he stole my wife and he's this cocky jerk. To which we then see him talking with the reporter and comes off as the cocky jerk who would who would steal a man's, quote unquote, steal a man's wife <laughs> and child. And, and you know, it's like, well, I am stuck with a kid because the woman's got the... So, which is nasty. But we also get the letter, which I think is real. I don't see any reason why we should doubt it that that Boyd is reading from his daughter and she's complaining about Peter being, oh, it's all about him and he takes us only to the places he wants to go. And so it does sound like he's not great. Except <laughs> with, she's a kid. She's, she's, 
you know. That I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, she's, she's 12. 10 or 11 or whatever. He's, 12. He, he didn't give her an ice cream that day, you know. It's, and, and she'll, she, I mean, even if it's not, even if it's not just her being in a strop with him at that moment, she's also going to be aware that Clive hates him. And so, and could be, you know, in, in, in seeking his approval, she is going to want to say whatever she thinks he wants to hear. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's totally reliable. And I think, I, I think, because I think, I think you're right about everything that we see on, and in particular here in Act One, the combination of, of, of Clyde's account, the letter, and the, the way in which Wager presents himself do suggest that he is a jerk. But in the second half, we see how Wager actually behaves and we also get to see and hear from Sheila Boyd herself. I think you get a different story. Okay, except for just that one bit. We, we, we cannot, you cannot dismiss the bit where he goes in and shoots a man in the back. I think he's a jerk. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> I think yeah. he's a jerk. I'm, what I'm saying is he's not pure jerk. He's not a hundred percent shallow, cocky idiot. There is there is something more to him. I think he's a jerk purely because he knows how much he's upsetting Clyde just by sitting around on set and by sniggering and all the rest of it. He has oh, yeah. no he has no reason to wind the guy up. Yes, he's 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 with his wife, but you know, so what? It's that it's That's a human over. thing. It's it's what why why is why has he got to rub salt into the wound? I don't I don't think any of that is honourable or defensible behaviour. And so on that basis, I think well he is a pretty nasty character. And yeah, maybe there's a tiny bit of he gets what he deserves at the end, even though obviously no one deserves that. But he still shoots who he thinks is a human being, mad or not, in the back. With yeah, what would have been lethal? Um, yeah, that 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 steps beyond yeah. jerk a little bit, and you know, a jerk to I murderer. Think he's a jerk. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know quite what they were going for there. What what was it that motivated him to? What was it that motivated him to murder? Because if well, because if it had been if it had been the fact that he saw uh, the, the Boyd's wife soaked in blood and thought he's he's slaughtered her i could believe that if if she had passed out and they had dragged her out and she was soaked in blood like that and he ran off with a shotgun and shot boyd i could believe it but before he leaves the scene sydney says oh this is just chemical blood she's she's not hurt at all i could see that being traumatic enough to throw him over the edge and then they pull it, yank him back before he leaves the leaves earshot of. I of don't Sydney. think it's a question of throwing him over yet. The guy has brought the shotgun with him for a reason. Defense. He, he's willing. No, well, he he's willing to use it. He sees Clyde as a threat in a number of ways, and he has just terrified his wife. It is. It is I, the case. I, I, and and he and he's still on the rampage. He's still out of control. I don't think it's a. I don't well, think it's an entirely dif- difficult to imagine situation that he goes in there and shoots the guy. I I maybe this is a lifetime of you know the good guys don't shoot first and and 
But he's not. And a you good don't guy. shoot he's him in the jerk. back. I know he's not. He is a jerk. There's a there's a line between jerk and shooting a man who's sitting down in a chair with his back to you in the back. He's not under any threat. I thought that he brought the shotgun because he brought the wife reluctantly because he didn't want her in danger's way. Fair dues to him that if she was going to be there, he was going to have something to try to protect her because the gun trumps mechanical hands and all that is, is good. If he had gone into the thing with the shotgun and Clyde had lunged at him, I could perhaps forgive it, but he comes in, he sees them. He's not moving. He has every reason to believe that he is in that suit, which we're supposed to believe, although it's obvious he's not. And, and it's, it's sitting down, it's slumped forward, it's looking, you know, it's looking the opposite direction, and bam, blows it away. It it gives it gives us the moral justification in the audience, supposedly, for when Clyde kills him a moment later. But and you kind of go, well, that one he deserved it, but it just doesn't quite feel like what he would have done to me, or why he brought the gun. Or, or that he had a reason for thinking that, you know, if he thought he'd killed her, then in his, him also being mad with loss, it's a parallel, but he doesn't have that. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wish he had run off before Sydney had identified it as artificial blood. Oh no, that would have been awful. Why did they do it then? Why did they why did they intentionally make her fall over and roll around in the blood so she would come out spattered and soaked like she had been I horribly think, badly mangled? Cuz I think they're still just they're still just playing with the the tropes. Yes. Yes. Mm. Exactly. Because the whole way that shot was her kind of rolling around in it so she looks as bad as she possibly could. Yeah. You know, that you've seen that you've seen that done where it's supposed to be for real as well, and you know it's not. So I think I think they're they're playing with that. This time they're saying to you up front, it's not real, but we're still, you know, we're still gonna we're gonna play that game, and we're still going to then get a a, a reaction from the boyfriend. Mm. I forget which nineteen seventy year seventy six seventy. When are we, when are we here? For this show, 76. Uh, I thought it was interesting that when Bunny went to talk with Peter and talked about him, you know, trying to get him to leave. And to his credit, he kind of tries to get him to do it amicably. Like, we'll pay you. He's like, nope, I want the part. He's like, well, I'll tell you what, what if we give you a bonus and we pay you? Nope, I want the part. And then he follows it up with, and if you think you can let me go, you get a contract. If you think like me go on some sort of a morality clause in this day and age, I'm going to sue you. And, you know, it used to be that, that all movie contracts, I don't know what, what point they stopped doing it, but all, all stars movie contracts had, uh, morality clauses in them that if you get caught doing something, um, we're going to fire you. You know, you've, you're in breach of contract. And, that's been used in some pretty... 
I, I don't want to say I'm opposed or I'm in favor of them because that's not that's not right. But you can understand why you do not want to have a film or you might think you don't want to have a film where, for example, the star committed murder. Right? I mean, that would that would fall under the morality clause as well as, you know, any number of any number of uh, lesser transgressions along the way that you might think that that would hurt your box office. I think I think we've subsequently learned that it just helps your box office but um i i I remember there was uh the 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 classical tv series uh perry mason the the district attorney and i cannot think of the actor's name but it was hamilton Berger, uh was arrested and the reports were something like uh, he was arrested naked at a party of naked people uh, with marijuana uh, was in presence. And it, it may not even be true subsequently um, that he was a participant in any of those things. But nonetheless, you know, they they dumped him and then I guess he got exonerated and they didn't want to bring him back. So and, and they did eventually because the star of the show drew a line and said, well, no, you're bringing him back. But it, it's it's fascinating how something those things can just wipe out a career. And you could see why this guy wouldn't want to be kicked on that, that he'd go after it. And, you know, and it's this this is that doom watch time where they had that that morality commission. And these are things that can't be enforced anymore, probably would be my guess. I mean, just because he stole somebody's wife, I mean, big deal. Can't fire him for that. But it's interesting that they threw it in there, that it was mentioned. At least I thought so. Uh, got anything else? Just one thing, really, which was that I noticed that the episode was directed by Don Lever. I thought it was, I thought it was very well directed. It wasn't. It didn't stand out to me so much that I recognised it was directed by Don Lever. I only noticed that because I saw um, his his credit for the episode, but I just mentioned it because he has directed, well, he, he's, he's directed some of my favourite episodes of The Avengers and The Bill, and he's one of the, the most influential directors of The Avengers, along with Peter Hammond, I would say. He, he directed um, the opening episode of the very first series, in fact, he directed a lot of episodes of the very first series, uh, but he was still directing it through into the Diana Rigg era. And he's great. Hmm. I don't recognize the name, I will admit. Uh, I am looking through his IMDb at the very moment. Police surgeon, so that's the pre-Avengers. Yes, thing. that's that's how that's how uh, I think Sidney Newman knew him. He he his first job, I think, in television was on Police Surgeon. Looks he like he directed it, yeah. quite a few of those. He did about his first twenty job, episodes yeah. of the Avengers. Um, including uh, some, you know, real like uh, um, Dial a Deadly Number, for example, the, the kind of visual elan that he displays in the way he shoots that is 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 remarkable, and he's really really good on the fight scenes as well. Which again, that's a good that's a, a good example of. Um, yeah, I mean, he's done a he's done a lot. There's no doubt about it. Well, the the there's almost almost 40 years between 
the the episodes of the the Avengers and the episodes of the Bill that uh, I particularly like of his. So it's quite a, a a span of his career. Yeah. Um, thoughts on beasts as a whole? Well, it started out a bit ropey, um, but on the whole, it got better in the second half. I would say, pretty uneven. I think we we discussed this earlier, and just to prove how ill prepared I am for this, um, you were going to compile a list of which episodes were your favorites in order. Yeah, I did not prepare such a list, so I can't compare that. But I will I will try to think about it right now while you <laughs> while you go over it. I'll uh, I'll just uh, kind of work on myself. Uh, so so how's yours? How does your list work? Well, I think that um, the opening episode was the weakest, so I I, I think... That's special offer, right? Bit of an odd choice. I'm trying to remember the the titles now. Yes, I'd say special offer was my least favourite. And I thought thought Baby and Baby was probably slightly edged out by during Barty's party. Both of them were kind of well-crafted and fundamentally uninspiring episodes i wouldn't particularly rush to to watch either of those again so that's four and five the other three are much better i'd say probably in third place i'd put what big eyes and i i guess i guess yeah i think probably buddy boy is just about edged out by the dummy i mean it may be because i just only just watched it but i did think that one was terrific Okay, so we got uh, the dummy buddy boy. Uh, what big eyes? That's the that's the top league, top tier. That's the top three. And then was it during Barty's party better than than Baby or the other way around? I think during Barty's party, just just better just. Than baby. But and neither of them anyway are good. Interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, I can say I agree with you. Special offer is without doubt the worst of the bunch. And and looking at the rest of those, I can go and say that I thought Buddy Boy was the second worst of the bunch. Did not enjoy that story. <laughs> but Buddy, but Special Offer was just bad and didn't enjoy it. So it, it was it was uh, Buddy Boy had the advantage of being a well put together for what it was story. Uh, I would say that uh so trying to take up the next four i thought during Barty's party was fine uh what big eyes was was good so i have a top four the upper level i mm, that is hard to say i i'm gonna have to go i think i probably liked you're not gonna like this answer i probably liked baby the best of the bunch and then what big eyes dummy and uh the last one <laughs> uh during Barty's party so you're very different very different list uh on those two but as a whole was this a successful i take it this was successful since you have at least three good episodes uh is it consistent you know even the bad episodes for me even the bad episodes like like buddy boy not not special offer but even buddy boy there is some very keen human observation there. There, there, there is, there is Neil, Neil has the ability to 
see, observe, and then capture on paper people or what what come what off is, as yeah. believably people. So I mean that that's that's that people is why are lusting after a dolphin that's haunting them, for example. That part is, uh, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> Well, I guess they had to have bestiality in beasts. Uh, that it just wouldn't be. Let, let, let's let's ask the question about the the beasts in each episode, in each story. So, in in special offer, the beast is. It's obviously it's people all the time. In in every episode, the beasts are all people. There, well, no, it's not actually the rats are actual so. beasts. Yeah, but you know. Uh, the 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 store manager is a is a horrid beast and the girl by the end of it is clearly killing on purpose but the the so-called beast is the imaginary rodent uh, during uh during Barty's party obviously the beasts really are dangerous rats it's the most straightforward of the bunch in terms of beasts per se Although it is interesting, you know, the interesting play there is the the two people uh, reversing their their competency roles by the end of the the story. Um, Buddy boy, you know, we've got all of them are pretty nasty, except the girl and she's weird. And we don't know whether there really was a dolphin ghost there or not. So it's all in their minds. The werewolf one, the guy was nasty. I mean, he was just a nasty human being. He he deserved to be a wolf um here man becomes beast which is kind of interesting because in the other one beast man uh but what big eyes he is a beast of a man and he does not become a beast and in this one i, I suspect clyde was not actually a nasty guy milk toast perhaps but that he becomes one so it's kind of reverse almost reverse of the the other in a way this is the lycanthropy episode it just happens because he puts the suit on um and then and then the other one baby that was just weird and it did have a thing in it i liked it i liked it it i don't know that it fits the theme of the rest of the story the stories but if there is a theme any last thoughts on all of them no <laughs> I'm gonna just, we'll just leave it there then all right well in that case simon thank you for joining me for this journey through nigel neal's beasts i don't know how much more nigel neal we've got to to cover uh but uh i think oh, we're i think, I think we're beginning got, to run run it down we've got at least at least the i was going to say we've got we've still got half of quatermass to do but part of half of quatermass is missing yeah um, yeah but there's 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 still a fair bit of of quatermass yeah but that will not be next that will be later on well we don't anyway we don't we don't want to uh we don't want to gorge ourselves no, 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 that would be beastly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. 
Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, it's the optimistically titled episode of Star Hunter Redux. Goodbye, so long. Could this be the final episode? Tune in and find out on Fusion Patrol.